Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, have you heard of so-called ghost signs? You've no doubt walked or driven by them, faded business advertisements painted onto old buildings. There are efforts in Connecticut to preserve these ghost signs. Some date back to the late 1800s. We'll talk to a Cheshire company involved in helping to restore ghost signs in Old Saybrook. The John Canning Company focuses on conservation and restoration, taking on projects in Connecticut and around the globe. We'll hear from the founder and a principal of the company. That's later. First, the spooky season is behind us now, but Connecticut has many historic houses with stories about sightings or encounters that happen year-round. Joining us now on Zoom is Grace Ballinger, Mark Twain House Associate Director of Interpretation. Grace, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having us. And Mallory Howard is here, who's an assistant curator at the Mark Twain House. Mallory, welcome. Thank you so much. So, Grace, uh, tell us about how long you've been at the Mark Twain House. And was there a time where there might have been a strange encounter that employees shared among themselves, but there wasn't a decision to really make those uh, encounters public? Yes, well, I've been here at the Mark Twain House since 2006. Um, And, you know, when I first started working here, I was just working as a historic interpreter, basically a guide giving tours. And some of those guide, uh, uh, some of my colleagues who had been here longer, often spoke about things sort of in hushed whispers, um, but it wasn't really talked about outright, uh, other than in the break room. Um, until about 2009. Um, but, you know, we were always told by the old hands at interpretation that you should be aware that you might smell cigar smoke or hear things or, you know, experience things that maybe weren't within the realm of reality, <laughs> I guess is the best way of describing it. Um, and then all that changed about 2009. So before we get to why it changed in 2009, when you heard this from other staff, you know, were you a, a, a someone who was maybe with think, thought this wasn't really the case? Or when you first noticed something strange, what was your reaction? Um, I think the first thing I noticed was a definite smell of cigar smoke at weird times, maybe when I was alone in the house. And, and uh, it was, it was disconcerting to say the least. Um, But I have a sort of open mind about things, I guess, and uh, didn't, wasn't spooked by it, but it was definitely disconcerting. And the cigar smoke. Uh, Samuel Clemens uh, smoked a lot of cigars. 
smoked up anywhere from 24 to 40 cigars a day. We've been told you would buy them by the barrel. And uh, they weren't the good Cuban cigars. They were cheap Connecticut uh, cigars, you know, rolled in South Windsor or someplace like that. So (laughs) he kept it local. (laughs) Yeah, he did. And so you said everything changed in 2009. So uh, tell us about that, Grace. Um, at the time, we had uh, Jacques Lamar uh, was our communications director, and a woman reached out to him with a photograph that she had taken of the home, which is a little bit unique in the fact that when you look at it from one angle, you really can't see anything. But when you look at it, uh, you, you blow it up and you look up at, look at it up close it appears that there are two figures standing in the window uh, looking out. And one of those figures was a a child and the other was a woman. And uh, they both appear to be dressed in sort of old fashioned garb. And uh, Jacques latched onto that. And um, we started talking about experiences that people had had in the house. And we had some investigations done by those that, seek out the paranormal. Uh, One investigative group was the Smoking Gun Research Agency. Uh, I guess they're based in uh, Southern Connecticut. And then after that investigation, uh, the Atlantic Paranormal Society, um, the group that was featured on the show Ghost Hunters on the Sci-Fi Channel came and investigated. And all the stories that staff and guests had Um, been telling sort of behind the scenes for many years sort of are brought to life. And we are now in 2009 talking about them amongst ourselves. And we all kind of realized that we'd all experienced something, but hadn't really talked about it, you know, other than the cigar smoke, which was just legend. Um, Many of us had had some sort of experience that we couldn't explain. And once we were talking about it, some of those experiences meshed up. Um, Mallory had a great experience and others had experienced it as well. So you're hearing Grace Bellinger here from the Mark Twain House, an associate director of interpretation, as we talk about uh, the Mark Twain House and some encounters that um, has led uh, the, the historic home to um, give uh, specific uh, tours based on some of uh, these experiences. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mallory Howard is here, assistant curator at the Mark Twain House. So you were in that episode episode of Ghost Hunters. What did you share? I was. I shared a particularly at the time jarring experience. I was giving a tour and I was in the drawing room of the house and over the fireplace is a giant plate glass window which allows you to see into the front hall where you first enter. And I was talking about their oldest daughter, Susie, who unfortunately passed away in the house. And as I was talking about her, I saw what appeared to be a head pass by that window in the front hall. And I thought, well, I have to keep an eye on them, make sure it's not a visitor who wandered away, that it's a colleague who's allowed to be here. And I saw the movement continue past a door that was slightly ajar and into the dining room, which was to my right. And I turned to confront the person and I saw a full-bodied apparition of a woman 
even the movement of her dress, her hair upkept. Um, and it just, I had a physical reaction. I stopped talking. My heart started pounding. I started shaking to the point where a visitor had to come up and ask if I was all right. And of course, I didn't want to admit that I had possibly just seen a ghost. So I just said I had frozen up for a minute and I continued on with the tour. And afterwards, I, I really thought about it and couldn't believe what I had seen. And you came to back to work the next day? I did, surprisingly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, uh, when we think about um, how there was a shift among staff uh, before uh, you would share these stories, but it wasn't something that you really mentioned to the public. And so now I, I believe the Mark Twain House has been holding uh, graveyard shift ghost tours and not necessarily um, pegged uh, always to, to Halloween. Can you talk about uh, why there was that shift and how the public has responded? Yes, I think, as Grace mentioned, once Jacques came on board, we started having more open discussions about what people had experienced or seen in the house. I had realized that the woman, the apparition I had seen, other colleagues had also seen her throughout the house. So it was decided this is an aspect of our history and experiences at the museum that we really should be sharing with others. And that's how the graveyard shift tours were born. And I think it's been really great for us. Not all museums want to do them. Not all museums agree that they should be done. But we decided that it was something we were interested in and we wanted to share with the public. And it has been wonderful. We have many people that come to visit us for the ghost tours and they will come back and do a daytime tour because they're so intrigued and we, we hook them at the ghost tours and they want to come back and learn more about the house more about Mark Twain and his family. And it opened us up to a whole new audience of people who are now lifelong fans of the house and Mark Twain. So it's really gone great for us. And I think the public appreciates learning the history of spiritualism and talking more about what happened in Nook Farm and seances and the tragedy that the Clemens family had to go through. It's a whole different aspect of the family's history and the house's history. So we are still diving in to a lot of that, but also sharing experiences. So it is fun because you get to hear spooky stories and things that have happened, but it also is teaching you about a whole other aspect of Twain. So talk more, Mallory, about spiritualism um, and the time that uh, Mark Twain lived in the home and uh, the family's beliefs. Yeah, so spiritualism really took off in the U.S. in the 1840s with Maggie and Kate Fox of Rochester, New York. They were known for their spirit wrappings, and they were very popular, and they toured across the country. It was later determined, they sort of recanted that they could talk to spirits because they were able to train themselves to crack their toes and their knuckles to make it sound like spirit wrappings. But it sort of popularized it at the time. And it also takes off again in the 1860s with the Civil War. Over 600,000 people die. Families are desperate to connect with their loved ones they never had a chance to say goodbye to or put to rest. And so that's when it really takes off again. And the Clemenses move into Nook Farm, which is the neighborhood here in Hartford. Uh, they move into their house in 1874. 
And one of their neighbors, Isabella Beecher Hooker, who was the half-sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, was a well-known spiritualist. And she had mediums over her house quite often for seances. She was even told in 1876 at the stroke of midnight that she would become ruler of the world. So she had a party to celebrate. Uh, We know the Clemenses attended. Unfortunately, she did not become ruler of the world, I'm sure much to her dismay. But Clemens attended parties like that. He dabbled in writing articles about seances when he worked for a newspaper in San Francisco. He was supposed to debunk seances and show the mediums that were deemed to be frauds. So he had a long history with it. And unfortunately, he also faced a lot of tragedy. He lost three of his four children, uh, a younger brother due to a steamboat explosion. So throughout his entire life, he's really going back and forth about wanting to believe. Can he believe? He wants to connect with the loved ones he lost, but is it something that is real? So it's very interesting to see how he evolves throughout his lifetime um, about whether spiritualism is something he can really believe in or not. Grace, can you talk more about when someone goes on this specific tour, like how you're talking about uh, spiritualism and uh, Mark Twain's uh, background? And again, you know, I'm curious how the public responds. Do we have a lot of fans who already know this part of his life or this is the first time they're hearing about it? I think it's probably, you know, 75% of them come because it's a ghost tour and 25% come because they're, um, they understand Twain's background. Uh, I, I find that's what the makeup of, of our visitors for the graveyard shift tours are. They leave knowing a little more about spiritualism, Twain's involvement in the movement, uh, his belief and disbelief in the movement, and they, many of our visitors are very interested in learning how Jason and, and Grant and their team from the Atlantic Paranormal Society, as featured on Ghost Hunters on Sci-Fi Channel, are investigating the house. Um, they have a following and, and that following comes to us. <laughs> um, we talk about Twain's involvement in spiritualism. We also talk about his own belief in what he called the powers of the mind um, while we're on tour. And then we will inter, uh, interject tales of the, the experiences people have had through the house. And, um, you know, many of the guests actually have their own experiences during these tours. And we encourage people to share them and explain those experiences in a letter or something like that. So we can continue to compile the stories that are told about the hauntings in the house and such. Um, There've been some interesting stories that have come out and uh, we've turned non-believers into believers. Uh, I, I had a great story of a gentleman who came with his family they loved the ghost hunter show and they were going to all the sites that the ghost hunters had investigated. And he was a non-believer until he came here. Something happened to him and he now believes. Talked to him at least once a year and he asked me about the ghosts in the house. So, 
Mallory Howard, again, you're also with us, assistant curator of the Mark Twain House. So these tours have been wildly popular. Um, so talk more about, you know, how they fit into, you know, your overall aims at the Twain House uh, to, to inform people about uh, Samuel Clemens, but also the historic period and, and Hartford, uh, what it was like uh, in the late 1800s. Yeah, I think it's definitely an avenue that we like to go more in depth about. People will come during one of our daytime tours, whether it's a regular tour or a living history tour, and they learn about Hertford at the time and Nook Farm, the neighborhood that the Clemenses lived in and what it was like for their children growing up with Mark Twain as their dad and the stories that they got to hear. And it's a lot of fun to do those but there's a whole other side that people want to learn about. And it just gives us another opportunity to share more knowledge that we have about a completely different aspect. So we're sharing information that you don't get any other time except for those tours. And we can dive a little bit deeper into Isabella Beecher Hooker and how the women's suffrage movement connects to spiritualism. And we can talk a little bit more about those tragedies and explore Twain's mindset during them. And there's also the bonus of just being able to see the house in a completely different light, both literally and figuratively. Uh, You get a little bit of a different aspect walking through. And so I think it's really helped us gain a new audience, gain a new appreciation from people about how many different aspects of history they can explore at our site. Mallory Howard, again, is the assistant curator at the Mark Twain House. Grace Bellinger was also here, Mark Twain House, associate director of interpretation. Grace and Mallory, it's such a pleasure to hear this side of the history at the Twain House. And I know many of our listeners are looking forward to hopefully some holiday events coming up, Grace. We are going to be decorated for the holidays on or about Thanksgiving, Mallory. Yes. yeah, okay. Uh, Christmas tours um, to the general public will start the day after Thanksgiving. If you want to come visit us on Thanksgiving weekend, make sure you make your reservations now because we are extremely busy that weekend. Uh, and then we are not going to have in-person holiday events, but we do have a virtual series. Our Clemens Conversation virtual series is going to be exploring um, over the course of four weeks, uh, one night a week, um, various aspects of Clemens Christmases. So we've got uh, Charity in the Gilded Age, we've got uh, Decorating the Home, Um, their travels abroad during the Christmas holiday seasons is another subject matter, and then just, you know, what a family Christmas would be like here in Hartford. And we have a number of great upcoming uh, talks, both in person and virtual, that you can learn about on our website, www.marktwainhouse.org. Um, it's going to be a busy few months, and we're hoping that you'll all join us. It's a wonderful treasure to have here in our state. Grace and Mallory, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for having us.
Yes, thank you for having us. You've been listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a local company that specializes in historic restoration and preservation. The John Canning Company has done work at the Twain House, among many others. And later, do you know about ghost signs? There are efforts in Old Saybrook to uncover and preserve more of them. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We just heard from the Mark Twain House in Hartford. The late 19th century home is a national historic landmark built in the Victorian Gothic revival style. My next guest helped restore the Twain House's guest quarters, known as the Mahogany Suite. Joining us now on Zoom is John Canning, founder and a principal at John Canning and Company, based in Cheshire. John, welcome to the show. Uh, good good morning, uh, uh, Lucy, and thank you thank you for having us on your show. Also with us, David Riccio, who's also a principal at John Canning and Company. David, thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having me. And if you enjoy uh, historic preservation efforts in our state and want to learn more, you can join us as well. Eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's eight 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 seven two zero WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. So, John, I'll start with you. I mentioned earlier that your company does work in Connecticut, but also around the globe. Let's start first with the the Mark Twain House and Museum. What was your first visit to this uh, this house like? Can you describe uh, your impressions of it? Uh, yes. Well, the restoration of the Mark Twain House, of course, has been going on since about the 1960s. Uh, my first impression of the historic house was when I first emigrated to the United States from Scotland uh, about 1969. I, I visited the house because the the restoration was ongoing and, you know, were very interested in what quality of work was being done. And I actually befriended a couple of the decorators that were doing the work. That's the, the Sands brothers from, from Hartford. Um, I was very impressed by the quality of their work and also the research that went into reconstructing the original uh, Tiffany Comfort's uh, United Artists uh, United Artist Studios uh, decoration. 
And um, so that was my first impression, being so impressed by the, the skill and the work that uh, was being carried out then. Did you think one day that you would, you would be doing work in that home as well? I, I, well, I have two thoughts about that. Um, one, yes, I would love to do work in there, which we eventually ended up doing. However, I thought that because the Sands brothers had done so much good work there, it would only be right that if they done future restorations. But of course, both of them are retired now, and um, we did get the invitation to do the recent uh, restoration of the house, the guest suite in particular. It's just beautiful inside the Twain house. I mean, when you think about the detailed woodwork, the stenciling, um, even the outside, the painted bricks, all of the gables. And so I mentioned the mahogany suite. So tell us about this project. What made it so unique? Okay, well, um, the gas suite, uh, which we restored, uh, which became known as mahogany room, uh, mahogany room and that was because of its rich and durous mahogany furnishings and woodwork um i should add that during this restoration the john cannon company was pleased to be a part of the restoration team which consisted of Downs construction and was led by the project architect david scott parker who who, who was responsible for most of the research architectural research in the room so again, our role in that team was to implement the restoration work in the traditional methods and practices of the Victorian period. Uh, this included the plaster consolidation and repairs uh, of the ceiling and walls, refinishing of all of the woodwork, polychroming, gilding, and the installation of Candace, Wheeler, of Candace Wheeler's award-winning wallpaper design, Honeybee, which was reproduced on canvas for the ceiling and the walls. And uh, Candace Wheeler uh, arguably was the first, uh, the first lady interior designer and uh, graphic designer. May, may I add that, uh, John, the description of the honeybee, uh, the honeycombs and the pattern, and of course the pattern on the ceiling, which maybe apropos to our conversation today, had uh, spider webs as well. So uh, very interesting and co uh, complex pattern design. So you're hearing David yeah. Riccio, who's also a principal at John Canning and Company. David, I had described uh, the company as a restoration and conservation uh, company. But when you think about also uh, when you go into a place like the Twain House, like also the, the, the amount of decoration. Uh, and so how do you get into this line of work? I think of you and John as maybe artists and historians. Uh, yes, I, I would say uh, that applies. Uh, uh, craft first. Uh, John and I came into this industry in different paths. And I think John's path is quite interesting, which he, he can elaborate on. But I followed in his footsteps. And uh, I came into the field uh, post-college with a business background focusing on business management. And uh, uh, I am married to John's youngest daughter. And so I've known John before I entered this industry and this practice. And uh, we were working together uh, on a business level and communicating, talking about uh, business development and management and uh, business reach and things of that nature. And uh, through that relationship, and of course, that personal relationship, 
um, we started connecting on the idea of preservation and me coming on board. And uh, John mentored me through a very strict five-year apprenticeship program in the uh, decorative paint and plastering um, craft. Uh, and this, this apprenticeship is an old world apprenticeship where the master painter um, really works closely, um, both uh, in practical sense, but also in an educational sense, as John did with me. There's many conversations, many discussions about old world techniques and materials uh, that he has practiced and instilled upon me. And to this day, I can walk into a building uh, and look at a treatment that I may have never actually seen before or touched or restored. But because of that apprenticeship and that, in some ways, folklore that John has passed on to me, I know immediately when I walk into a space what that decoration is, the condition, the state of what, what it stands, and what's required to, re to repair it. So uh, it puts me in a very unique position in our industry from a business and craft point of view, but I think it all starts with the mentorship and traditional apprenticeship that John gave me, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, John, uh, I had asked David how he got into this uh, line of work. And so uh, when you were in Scotland, tell us about the work you were doing before you uh, were arrived in Connecticut. Oh, okay. So um, I served a five-year apprenticeship as a painter and decorator uh, specializing in church decoration. So this was some 60 years ago, 60-odd uh, years ago. And there was an apprenticeship program that existed in the United Kingdom there for apprentices, whereby during this five-year apprenticeship, um, an apprentice was, the term was uh, a day release. We were released one or two days a week to attend college without an interruption in our pay. But that had a condition to it. And that condition was that one apprentice would attend uh, night school, uh, probably three to four nights a week. So during that system, I was able to uh, attend the, the Scottish DTI, that is the Scottish Decorative Trades Institute, the Stowe College of Building, and of course, night classes at the Glasgow School of Art. Um, so when I emigrated to the United States, I had this accumulated knowledge of of uh, when I say accumulated knowledge, uh, let me try and explain that. Uh, an apprentice, uh, the, the nature of an apprenticeship is the handing down of skills from one journeyman uh, to an apprentice, in other words, from generation to generation. So uh, way back in the late 1950s, I was fortunate enough to work with tradesmen who were plying their trades since the turn of the century and were able to hand down this knowledge and techniques to me of that period. So that's that's how I came to this industry, and it's the only industry that I've, in, I've worked in, enjoyed, and loved. You're hearing John Canning again, founder and a principal at John Canning Company based in Cheshire. David Riccio is also here, a principal at this company, as we learn more about the work that they're doing in places like the Twain House. If you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So getting back to the mahogany suite, uh, John, uh, that you're part of this team, uh, you and your and others from your company, um, helping to restore the guest quarters and 
the Mark Twain House. You mentioned earlier the United Artists and Candace Wheeler. So talk about that, the work that you're doing to model their decorations. Okay, well, as I say, the, the, um, the architectural research was conducted by the architect, project architect, David Scott Parker. Um, there was quite a few blanks that had to be filled in. We do know that the, uh, the ceiling and walls of the guest suite uh, were wallpapered, but uh, the wallpaper was lost. Uh, so I believe that um, it was agreed by uh, everyone that a substitute wallpaper, wallpaper that possibly would have been used, uh, was used for the walls. And that, of course, was a canvas, uh, canvas wheelers uh, beehive. Uh, wallpaper. Uh, we had that reproduced, or I'll say the architect had it reproduced by Bradbury and Bradbury, who were uh, specialized in, in reproducing historic wallpapers. They reproduced this uh, wallpaper uh, on canvas uh, rather than wallpaper, uh, because there was some evidence in the past that it was canvas that was used, not wallpaper. So they reproduced, uh, Bradbury and Bradbury reproduced uh, Candace Wheeler's wallpaper on canvas. Uh, I believe there are six different patterns on this wallpaper that had to be pieced together perfectly but jointed. So as explained that our role in the restoration was to implement the work using the original, uh, the, the Victorian uh, methods and materials uh, that had been used in that period. And there was a number of techniques that were somewhat lost at the present day that we had to employ uh, into achieving these perfectly butted edges. Mm -hmm. Butted edges mean two edges coming together, being butted together. And David, can you add to that? So distinguishing the decoration from the conservation and restoration work. Sure. The, the restoration... Uh, in this case, is a, is a replication of what was once there. Uh, and the conservation, um, in this case, would be the stabilization of the plaster and the woodwork, uh, for example. Uh, the woodwork um, was, uh, as, as noted, mahogany. Uh, the original woodwork was uh, aniline dye stained, which is uh, a type of uh, stain, if you will, um, that is not often used today, but it's, a, it's really truly a dye. And the wood is uh, dyed to a particular color, in this case, a, a warm brown color. Uh, and then uh, traditional shellac is applied and then waxed. Again, these kind of materials and techniques are, aren't often used in commercial projects today. Um, with the DYI uh, availability of uh, products off the shelf, uh, homeowners and contractors just uh, grab out what's most convenient and easiest to use. Uh, but we tend to and want to use those traditional methods and techniques. So uh, when it comes to that uh, uh, varnishing uh, using the shellac, we mix our own shellac. We take the uh, shellac flake, we melt it down with uh, denatured alcohol and get it to a certain consistency, uh, a recipe, if you will, and then apply it by hand. And uh, it's a little bit more laborious uh, because there are multiple applications that are required and uh, preparatory steps in between each application where we're sanding and cleaning off the surface and then reapplying till we get a nice buildup of a, 
of a mirror type finish, if you will. Um, and then it's then it's ultimately uh, waxed. And, and when we wax the surface, we apply the wax to protect the, the finish, but also to control and to uh, enhance the uh, reflection and sheen. So uh, those are some of the things that were done with the wood. Uh, and then with the plaster, uh, we conserved the plaster where we stabilized it. Some of the old fashioned three coat plaster, and often people talk about uh, horsehair plaster, which was the case here. I'm not exactly sure if it was horsehair, if it was some other animal such as goat, but um, that old fashioned plaster uh, was coming away and we stabilized it using fasteners and, and glues and adhesives and things like that. Well, we've been talking about the Twain House, which I believe, again, uh, your your work as part of a team won a 2020 Preservation Connecticut Award for the restoration of, of the mahogany suite. But David, uh, talk through with us about some of the other landmarks that the John Canning Company uh, has been able to work on, not just in Connecticut, but around the globe. Well, we've been fortunate uh, over the past 45 years to work in uh, some of America's architectural treasures. Uh, I'd say first and foremost, we've started with the U.S. Capitol. And over the past 40 years, we've been there uh, on various occasions, restoring and conserving some of uh, the most precious artwork in the building, including uh, some of the work in the Bermudi corridors. We've worked at the U.S. Uh, the White House, uh, many, many state capitol buildings. And um, as a result of uh, the January 6th attack, we are once again back at the U.S. Capitol doing conservation work of the Bermudi corridors. Unfortunately, um, we're there for the wrong reasons, but I'm glad we're there nonetheless. Um, we've also obviously, uh, we've worked at the Grand Central Terminal in New York City, where we uh, conserved the uh, concourse ceiling there, the sky mural, as, as most uh, tourists know it. Uh, and uh, many, many theaters and in sacred spaces of all denominations. David, that must be uh, quite meaningful for you and your team uh, when you mentioned the work that you're doing at the U.S. Capitol after January 6th. This is the people's house. Uh, such disrespect shown for uh, that place and the people in it that day. What does it mean to you to be part of this project? It's humbling, to say the least. Uh, we're grateful to be considered and to be a part of that. Uh, it is uh, upsetting, of course, but uh, and that's what I thought on January 6th, that while we've done a lot of work here, uh, those craftsmen that John talked about, these incredible craftsmen architects that preceded us, um, in the, in the, uh, the servants uh, in the building, past and present, uh, and the jobs they were doing, uh, it's, it was just um, sad to see that. But uh, being a part of that is humbling, and uh, and uh, every time we walk into uh, the U.S. Capitol building or other buildings that I've mentioned, uh, they are civic cathedrals, and they are the best of us architecturally uh, and artistically speaking, um, as well as craft. So uh, we are honored to be part of these types of endeavors, and we know that what we're doing is uh, – preserving the past. It's really stabilizing, presenting the past to us today in which we can learn from that. And then obviously uh, the work that we're doing today is going to bring us for, forward. I mentioned again that you've done work around the globe. Uh, John Canning, uh, just briefly, you've got a, uh, an interesting anecdote about some work in Hawaii. Can you tell us about that? Oh, well, yeah. Well, in, this, in, the, in the company here, we like to when we're describing the work we're doing, we like to describe that uh, we've worked in mansions from Hartford to Hawaii. 
and of course in, in Hawaii we were we restored part of uh, Doris Duke's uh, Shangri-La home just at the bottom of uh, the diamond uh, volcano. Um, that uh, that was uh, for us uh, one of the first real dealing with Islamic art because the entire house is based upon uh, palaces that uh, Doris Duke acquired during our honeymoon from the Middle East and uh, Iraq and Iran and pieced together this beautiful house in Hawaii with all of this Islamic, uh, Islamic art. And again, that was my first exposure to real Islamic art. And uh, uh, so that is our experience in Hawaii. Lucy, for those that don't know, Doris Duke, uh, her family founded Duke University and a uh, uh, very wealthy family in America. Uh, and uh, her, she had homes in Newport and other places throughout the country. You're hearing David Riccio here on Where We Live, a principal at John Canning Company. Also, John Canning, founder and principal at John Canning Company. Again, it's a historic building restoration and conservation company based in Cheshire. We've been focusing on buildings, but there's a really interesting project that uh, this company is involved in to restore so-called ghost signs. We'll talk more about that right after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you heard of so-called ghost signs? You've no doubt walked or driven by them. Faded business advertisements painted onto old buildings. There are efforts in some Connecticut towns to preserve these ghost signs. Some date back to the late 1800s. My guests today are involved in helping to restore ghost signs in Old Saybrook. John Canning and David Riccio here on Zoom. So, David, let's talk through with us about uh, these ghost signs and how John Canning and company got involved uh, with uh, the work in Old Saybrook. Oh, very well, yeah. Uh, we received a call in 2020 during the middle of the pandemic um, from the Historic Society there asking us to look at a very important building uh, in the town that had old-fashioned signs that were kind of ghosting through uh, various layers of signs and periods of signs. And they kind of all have uh, melded together into uh, and washed away and eroded to the point where you can just faintly make out some of the letters and some of the words and maybe the, the business uh, itself. Uh, but uh, so we're, we're called in to, uh, to examine it, to try and figure out what was there, what can be saved, if anything, can they salvage it? Can it can be uh, conserved as the term we use and practice we uh, perform. And so uh, I went and uh, brought a ladder up there, a six foot ladder and some tools and some cleaning agents and solvents and went to the sign, which is uh, the building is uh, 274 Main Street and it's at a corner and uh, it has a pretty interesting history uh, and it, which is important to the signs, I think. The, the building was built somewhere in around 1850. We don't have an exact date, but we know from town uh, maps, the first uh, map showing the building was uh, 1853. Uh, so we know that much. Uh, and at the time, the building was constructed by uh, a gentleman by the name of Amos Sheffield. And he used it and was intended as a grocery store with some uh, 
uh, private residence quarters or rental space above. And so Sheffield and Son uh, had their business there for uh, some years. Uh, and uh, at some point, uh, the Stokes brothers took over the grocery store. And this is really important to the building and to the greater history of the town. Stokes Brothers had the business for some 30 plus years uh, going into the 1920s, I believe. I don't have this history exact, but uh, it appears from all records they were there into the 1920s anyways. And Stokes Brothers uh, and their business were grocery store uh, was much more than that. As you can imagine during this period, uh, the grocery store uh, served obviously for groceries, but it offered hardware, dry goods, uh, clothing. Uh, it was like a department store, uh, albeit a very small and specific scale. And the Stokes brothers were, I think, pretty advanced businessmen uh, in how they viewed their customer and how they viewed their role in town. And uh, uh, that would be a movement I'd like to see in my town, frankly. But um, the Stokes brothers, they, a customer could come in and get their groceries and, and so forth, but they could also get their mail believe it or not. So this was a social hub in town, this particular store. Uh, so customers coming around socializing, I would say this, this location was uh, the Facebook landing page of their day. Um, <laughs> David, so, David, describe yeah. for us when we talk about what the painted advertisement at one time what it must have looked like and how you and your team are thinking about uh, the chemistry and restoring something on this side of a building. Yeah. So we know that the building at the North Elevation, uh, which is brick, red brick, uh, and the Stokes Brothers painted their first sign. We don't have a date, but they took up about two thirds of the wall space. And so the sign is quite large. The original sign was about 25 feet long and about 10 feet tall. And they uh, painted this uh, sign with uh, uh, painters that were specialized um, in sign painting, which I, I would love John to at some point talk about old fashioned sign painters, because that was a craft within the paint field uh, that he practiced in that we don't uh, no longer uh, uh, see anymore. But uh, the, the paints that were used originally uh, they were oil paints, uh, linseed oil paint at the time. Uh, the letters, lettering were serif type letters, uh, large in scale, uh, very direct, uh, trying to catch attention as uh, signs, uh, billboards do today still. So some hundred and, uh, plus years, 130, 140 years later, we're still trying to catch the passerby's attention with large, uh, sometimes garish um, uh, signage. But the, 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 the paints there were, were uh, oil paints and, um, and they were painted over again and again, which I can talk about mm. it, uh, later if you'd like me to get well, into. We, do, we just have a couple of minutes, so I do want to hear from John about this lost art when we look at these painted billboards from uh, the late 1800s. And you know, describe that for us, John, something we don't see today with our modern vinyl lettering. Yeah, that, that is correct. Um, the, the, uh, the trade, if you will, is uh, almost obsolete, although... Uh, we still do hand-lettered, uh, uh, not so much signs, but in, in our decoration, and in particular in, in churches where part of the decoration is a writ the written word. 
So we, we still try to practice that uh, sign writing trade. But um, again, it's, it's almost obsolete. As a matter of fact, um, one of our employees who's now retired was a billboard painter and artist. And um, he had done some wonderful, not only signs, but artwork. And um, when, of course, the, the industry became obsolete, he joined our studio. So say he's now retired, but he was a, a, a real asset to us. Um, again, there's, there's all sorts of techniques into sign writing. Of course, it has, it has to do with knowledge of the style of lettering size and spacing between the negative space between each each letter. Uh, it, it's, it's a very skillful uh, trade. And um, it's, I, you know, I'm at the stage in life where I regret seeing all these vinyl signs. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a really interesting project down in Old Saybrook. David, do you know if, if other towns or cities in Connecticut, their historic uh, preservation groups, are interested in restoring these ghost signs elsewhere? You know, I think this is unique. Uh, we have not received uh, too many calls prior to this or after since we've done this work, even though this, uh, this project has been uh, put in the media and articles about it and so forth. So uh, we haven't seen much of that, um, unfortunately. Uh, we do, uh, when I drive and uh, I, uh, through Hartford and up 84 and down 91 and so forth, I see these ghost signs uh, you know, scattered throughout uh, uh, the towns and cities. And, uh, and, and so much can be done with them because they, they do uh, obviously um, depict the period of time uh, that's really important and uh, that we can learn from. Uh, and even the history of this building with the, the signs, uh, because at, at various times in the history of this building, the signs changed, uh, the ownership changed, uh, the use of the building changed. And you could see that pictorial history through the, the ghost signs. Uh, so sometime after the Stokes brothers uh, moved out, uh, a colonial package store came in and then uh, Crowley Real Estate came in and they all had signs. And looking at the historic photographs, what we can see uh, from the historic photographs uh, from the 1940s and 50s, we see the outside of the building and in every one of these images that we've used as a reference for our research, they depict some sort of uh, patriotic celebration. And David, so we have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us talking about your craft, your passion. David Riccio, a principal at John Canning and Company, also John Canning himself, founder of this company based in Cheshire. We'll send out some pictures on our social and on our web post of, of some of these really interesting archival photos. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Thanks to Gina Matruda on the boards. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 